We are working our way through the book of Exodus, and uh, this morning we've come to the, to the 12, 12th chapter of Exodus. You may have noticed uh, that it's Christmas season, whether by the music blaring from every speaker in Baton Rouge, uh, songs that have nothing whatsoever to do with what we are in the process of celebrating, uh, whether it's the increased number of catalogs that you have received in your mailbox and are receiving day by day in increasing numbers, uh, whether it's, and you know you're expecting this, whether it is the uh, Christmas movies on Hallmark Channel, which began, by the way, on October 28th, three days before Halloween. Uh, I was wondering when it began, so I, I Googled it last night, and sure enough, October 28th, when it began, and we're going ad nauseum uh, until sometime in February, probably. Um, of course, there's always July, Christmas in July on Hallmark Channel, but uh, or whether it's all the, the clerks and the cashiers and their happy holidays, uh, you know, wherever you go. We have all these reminders that it's Christmas season, just in case uh, we're not otherwise aware of what happens towards the latter part of the month of December. With that preface, now that preface, I turn to Exodus chapter 12 and read the account there of, of the uh, institution of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, I'm reading through verse 28. I'll print it in your bulletin unless you have your own Bible, which would be much better to read it in. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, 
And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the homes where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I, when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is of your houses, uh, for, pardon me, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but whatever everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron so. They God instituted the Passover to perpetually remind Israel of how he delivered them from Egypt's bondage. And there's an awful lot that could be said and it probably should be said, but the point I, I want to make this morning is that Passover likewise reminds you and me of how God delivered us from sin's bondage. So we won't look at many of the details of the Old Testament Passover. 
uh, other than to say that uh, it's still going on. When, when we were in Louisville, Kentucky uh, years ago, uh, we lived in a, I guess, predominantly Jewish neighborhood or, or, or heavily Jewish neighborhood. There were two synagogues, congregations fairly close, and right around the corner was uh, the Jewish community center. Uh, Everybody else in the subdivision, with the exception of a couple of us, were liberal Protestants and a, were a scattering of Roman Catholics in, in the neighborhood. Uh, you couldn't tell the difference between the Reformed Jews and the liberal Protestants, by the way. None of them believed much of anything. But uh, except that on Passover, a number of the Jewish homes celebrated and observed Passover, kept it. And that was always interesting for us to watch. We never got invited to any of them, but we, we watched them as they sort of, you know, um, our neighbors across the street as they celebrated and came and went and whatnot. But, but it reminds us, Passover does, of what God has done to deliver us. First of all, it reminds us that we deserved judgment as much as Pharaoh and Egypt did. You remember they were idolaters in Egypt. Uh, also, they had uh, enslaved Israel and were holding them in bondage as slaves. And they, they would not heed God's word spoken to them by his representatives, his spokesmen, Moses and Aaron. And the penalty for all of that would be death. The firstborn in Egypt had to die. But not only did Pharaoh and Egypt deserve judgment, Israel did as well. They were every bit as rebellious and idolatrous in Egypt as the Egyptians were by this point. Uh, they too uh, didn't really heed God's messages as they might have. They faced the very same penalty as Egypt because they were as guilty as Egypt. And note verse 12. God says, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The firstborn in the land of Egypt, not the firstborn of the land of Egypt. And there's a huge difference. If it was of the people of Egypt, it would be simply the Egyptians. And the Hebrews would do like they've been doing through the first nine plagues. They are crucified. But they stand under the judgment of death every bit as much as the Egyptians did. It is the firstborn of all in Egypt. They were like all of humankind. It all started in the garden when, when Eve succumbed to the temptation and, and plunged the whole race of mankind into sin, the penalty for which is death. The fall and its effects are universal. So Paul writes, remember, there is no distinction. All that sin falls short of the glory of God. All are under sin. There is no righteousness. Second, it reminds us of our need for a substitute. 
Lamb was offered in the Passover as a substitute in place of the Hebrew firstborn, who otherwise would have died. But God provided the way. It was a lamb. It wasn't without precedent. You turn back a few pages in your Bible to Genesis 22, and there's the story of Abraham and Isaac. God tells Abraham to sacrifice the son of the promise, through whom the promise of the covenant would come to fruition. God says, take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abram takes him up the mountain. And as they were walking up the mountain, Isaac, carrying a load of firewood for the sacrifice, no small load, especially walking up the mountain, is what a little boy. But they're about, you know, up somewhere on the mountain, and and all of a sudden a light comes on. He says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? I've got the wood, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Don't worry. God will provide him and himself the sacrifice. And you know that God did. You know that story. Well, that's at the heart of the gospel story. Uh, the, the story that, that, that was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's the gospel story. That's the story. That's the, the prediction of the story, the prophecy of the story that Jesus fulfilled. So that John the Baptist could say to the people, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Paul could write to the Corinthians, For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Peter could write, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the Apostle John could write, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. That's why we sang just a few minutes ago, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. And while we can sing, bearing shame and scoffing room, in my place condemned he stood, sealed his pardon with my sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Third, it reminds us of how we're saved. By grace alone, through faith alone. Here's the big question I had about Passover. Why the blood? More particularly, 
the door frame. It's not me, man. Does, did God not know where they lived? <laughs> did he not know whose house belonged to the Hebrew, was a Hebrew house and which one was an Egypt, uh, Egyptian house? Did he need the blood to tell him? Look, the Hebrews had escaped all nine of the other plagues. God knew right where they were. He's on mission. He knows everything that's been done. He knows you, he knows me. And he knows where we live. And he knew where they lived. But then why the door with blood around it? Why the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil? Well, first to differentiate between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. Not for God, but for the Egyptians and the Hebrews. To testify to God's people. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. So that they might look at his word and, or hear his word and, and look at the fact that they had acted on his word. It was to strengthen their faith. Sometime during that night, surely, surely somebody would have doubted. There would have been fear in Hebrew houses. And then they could go into the blood, remember the blood on the door, reminded them of God's promise that he would pass over them they could take comfort. You and I might wonder some days. You ever have those days? I've already confessed last week that I have more time. You know, you see your sin. You come to some small understanding of just how rotten you are before God. And, and and how undeserving you are of His grace and mercy. Well, of course you're undeserving. That's the nature of grace and mercy. But when we get theological, we see our sin. And we know ourselves. We know our thoughts. We, we know our hearts. We know the real reason why we did the things we did. We know things shouldn't have said on and on. God really saved me. Is there really a place in heaven for me and the likes of me? Yeah, yeah, I know all that stuff. And then you remember the blood shed on the cross. Blood that washes away all our sin. You remember the righteousness of Jesus given to us when he took our sin and our unrighteousness upon himself. And we're good for another day.
The blood on the door, in other words, the blood on the door frame testified to their faith. A.W. Pink uh, compared, uh, actually distinguished between believing and believing in. There's a huge difference between believing and believing in. And he makes the point, an Israelite could have believed every word God said through Moses and Aaron about the blood. Could have gone out, chosen a lamb, kept it for four days, slain it, roasted it, eaten it, and not put the blood on the door frame. And he would have died. You gotta understand that. Without the blood on the door, he was a dead man. His neighbor, on the other hand, might wonder if it were really so. Can I trust God on this? It sounds almost too good. It, it doesn't make sense to me. But he chose a man, kept it four days, slayed it, roasted it, ate it, took the hyssop, dipped it in the blood, put it on the door frame. And despite his doubts, despite his hesitation, despite the weakness and inadequacy of his faith, he did something. God said, and he responded. Say, by grace, through faith. He acted on what he believed. Weakly, yes. Imperfectly, yes. Just like you and me. But he acted on it. And that's the point. Belief has to be acted on be faith. It's not just believing, it's believing in. It's moving from believing about to trusting, to committing, to resting. God has said, He's told you and me that salvation is in His Son. And He sent His Son from heaven, shed His blood on the cross, that all the lambs slain all the oxen slain, all the goats slain throughout the history of the world before the coming of Jesus pointed to him and to the cross. Every sacrifice made said there was a better one coming. Jesus says, God says, the Spirit says, the Bible says, rest in him. Crucified for your sin. You can believe that everything God says is true. I did. I did. And you can do that without ever coming to faith. I did. Until that day when all of a sudden the light came on by God's grace. And I realized that stuff that I just knew, uh, that I'd heard in the church, that I'd heard from my grandmother, that I'd heard from Christian friends, 
that had personal application to me. It wasn't just some truth out there, but it was a truth for me that I had to act on. What do I do? And that was a six-month wrestling match between me and I don't know what my own belief trying to figure out what are they talking about? I mean, you just gotta have faith. I mean, I, I've already confessed, I'm slow. <laughs> I'm not real bright. But I wrestled and wrestled until the day I finally realized what they mean is trusting in Jesus. And then I realized that somewhere along the line I'd begun to do that. And for the life of me, I don't know when. I know a period of time within which it felt like I can take what it was. But I crossed over somehow from believing that to believing in. To acting on what God has said that He's held out to us. Acting on His words to believe in His Son. To commit oneself to Him. Your future in this life and the next for all eternity. To trust Him at His word. To rest in Him. In the blood of the Lamb slain for you. Have you? And I know. I know who I'm talking to. Which is why I say have you. I know you come to church. I know you go to Bible studies. I know that you believe that what God says is true. But have you rested in it? you really come in faith. In the end, in the ultimate end, it's a difference between deliverance and death for all eternity. Fourth, it reminds us that salvation should lead to holiness. Philip Graham Wyckoff said, we are saved to be sanctified. <coughs> I think he's right. He's not entirely right, he's very close. <laughs> In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which I take to be an integral part of the Passover, the imagery, first of all, first of all, is that of haste of having to leave in haste as the Hebrews did. Don't put any leaven, you don't have time for that. We don't have time for the bread to rise. Eat, pack it up, and be gone. But then you get to the New Testament. It has to do with holiness there in the New Testament. With church and personal purity. So Paul writes, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. And he goes on. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Salvation by grace through faith leads to holiness, or the big word, sanctification. <coughs> Don't get the cart before the horse. Sanctification, holiness, doesn't lead to salvation. It can't. You can't be holy enough to be saved. I'm sorry. Sanctification follows on salvation. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Everything has become new. You're set apart by Christ to live for Him. You're holy in Christ and only in Christ. And the day is coming when you will be perfectly so. When he returns in glory and judgment and power and takes his church to himself, we will be perfectly holy. What the New Testament says is then live like that. Now. Now. Paul says, now you are children of light. Walk as children of light. Only, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, and that brings us to the conclusion. The high point for many of you of a sermon. Uh, God instituted Passover, I said, to perpetually remind Israel how he delivered us from Egypt's bondage. And so it likewise reminds us of how God has delivered us from sin's bondage. And he calls us to live as those so delivered. And in doing so, it points us to what occurred on that first Christmas day. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. Now that's something to celebrate this Christmas. <laughs>